Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. Today's episode was recorded on June 30th, 2021. Today I speak with Dustin Wadden. I've been a big fan of Dustin's for a while now, always interested in the way that he conducts himself, from being a fiery presence of love and passion on the volleyball court, to expressing honesty and encouraging dialogue about taboo topics off of the volleyball court. When we look back in 20 years, I believe that Dustin is someone that the athletic world will view as having had changed to the trajectory of men's volleyball in North America for forever. More importantly for me, he is someone that has been compelled for whatever reason to say what he believes to be true and engage in difficult conversations in good faith under immense pressure. In this discussion, we talk about mental health, victimhood mentality, the false dichotomy perpetuated by ever-growing media silos, health consciousness, philosophy, and a lot more. I am inspired by Dustin to ask difficult questions, not only of my environment and the world which surrounds me, but also of myself. I'm really excited to have Dustin on. As I said, I've been a fan of him for a while. So me being able to sit down and talk to him was big for me personally and for the podcast, I believe. There are gonna be a lot more guests coming on that I think I've had just as much fun with as the conversation with Dustin. and. I hope to have him on at some point in the future so that we can continue this discussion because I thought that it was honestly just a ton of fun for me. So I think that's the only thing that matters is the play within the conversation. I hope that you guys enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Today I'll be talking with Dustin Watton. Dustin is an active member of the U.S. men's volleyball team. He's played in Poland, Brazil, France, Finland, and he just got back from VNL the Volleyball Nations League, and today we're going to be talking hopefully a lot about philosophy, maybe some diet, and yeah, yeah, yeah we'll try to jump around to volleyball, but I don't like to talk about volleyball very much on here. So. <laughs> what, uh, what got you into stoicism, man? Yeah, so uh, it was, uh, uh, it was actually after that 2015 when I made my first uh, debut with the national team. And uh, man, it felt great. Finally made it, made it in quotation marks. Uh, and then got the trip to the World Cup, won the World Cup with the team and just felt so good. Felt like I made it. And uh, after that, I had to go to my team in France and uh, it was not a good situation or looking back, it was a great situation. Um, as soon as I got there, they were already like two months into it. Like one of the first days I got into it, like the team was like yelling at each other, like getting after it, like in the locker room, like what's going on? I asked the coach and he's just like, oh, they're like debating about wearing uniforms to practice. Cause the captain suggests that we, we didn't have a lot enough like t-shirts to wear every day. So they're trying to organize it and like, that just kind of summed up the year. It's just a bunch of guys that really weren't professional, a bunch of egos, not good players. And uh, it was a really difficult season. Uh, we ended up going three and 23. Uh, just not a lot of joy in training, a lot of frustration, um, a lot of victim mentality by myself because I just experienced such a high, right? It's like, this shouldn't be happening. This isn't right. This coach isn't good. These players aren't dedicated. I don't really have any friends. My girlfriend broke up with me. 
And it was just like all these things that previously made me happy. And when like, I think of happy, I think of like things outside of external things, right? Or maybe like, uh, um, like sense pleasures or maybe like joys within. So uh, after one particular game, where I was just like fed up with our setter, he was like pulling his hands on like balls that were like right at the tape. He'd like pull, I was like, man, I gotta get out of here. Like, I don't deserve this, da 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 da. You know, I kept on repeating these same things over and over. Called my agent, vented to him. Luckily he was like, I guess we could say stoic, the little S. He was just kind of like, okay, you know, relax. We'll figure something out. He's like, let's just have a couple of days to think about it. So the next day I went to a cafe and I just had meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Never really opened it. My brother gave it to me. I started reading it and I just started realizing like this wasn't necessarily the reality I was experiencing. It was the reality I was creating for myself. One of uh, pity, this victim mentality. It's not fair. It's not right. Where looking at in the mirror, I wasn't doing everything that I could or everything that was in my control. So at the time I had uh, this list and then uh, I was just like, you know what, this is the one thing that's in my control doing these micro tasks throughout the day. I was like, I'm just gonna go three weeks where I do hundred percent of everything and just like make sure I'm doing my part. I did that and uh, every, every day started to become like the, the best day ever. And after that, I was just kind of sold on stoicism and just started you know, diving deeper and learning more about the philosophy. But uh, it was this thought of uh, kind of reaching salvation and then going quickly back down to darkness. And then this was a tool to kind of pull me out of it while going uh, with it rather than um, hoping something outside of me would save me. How do you, the, the, the way that you started the story was a little bit with a, it was a bad experience and then you immediately jumped to, it was a good experience. Yeah. How do you, how do you find that you do that now? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's life with regards to my experience. It's just, you know, I don't, I don't know what I call it. Like God, like source, the universe, but I feel we have these experiences to open our, open the possibilities to evolution. And I think my most difficult, my most lonely, depressing years have been the ones where I've grown the most. And maybe it has to do a certain amount with being alone as well, where I don't really have any outside help. But in these situations, I've grown so much um, that year in France with stoicism. Um, my second year in Finland, just I realized I couldn't play video games all day. I needed to start reading, uh, then going into, you know, learning more about nutrition. And then in Brazil, having a really difficult time uh, playing there and learning about meditation. And so all these uh, situations that have brought a ton of discomfort have also been a catalyst for change within myself. There's this great line from this book, Dune by Frank Herbert. And he talks about the desert versus the city. And he says that man is built in the desert and polished in the city. Interesting. Yeah, I always like that. I like the idea of going away in isolation and finding ways to build upon yourself and to rebuild yourself and go through a 
more or less an alchemical change of the soul and come back as someone else because over time we unarguably change from who we were into who we currently are. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I was reading this like stupid meme on Instagram today and it was like, if you look back into your history and you don't think you were stupid, then you still are stupid. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, you look back on yourself and you like laugh of compassion, just like, oh, hmm, that was important to me. That used to be cool for me. It's like those are the people I hung out with or felt that were important. And uh, yeah, I really take, uh, I take a lot of pleasure going overseas because almost kind of like the seasons where it's like, I just kind of go into this hibernation and just I really learn about myself when things get difficult because I'm by myself. I don't really have anyone to like solve my woes, especially like through like hedon hedonism or these sense pleasures where I can feel, touch, taste, smell my way out of pain. I just am there by myself, usually in Eastern Europe. And so it's cold, it's dark, not only outside, but sometimes inside. And then it's up to me to kind of figure it out. How do you deal with negative emotion? I feel like that's something that's a little bit dissuaded now in the zeitgeist is being able to dive into negative emotion and accept it for what it is and move past it in a more healthy way as opposed to just setting it off to the side and seeking things that displace it momentarily. Yeah, I think that's the problem for society right now. It's like, not only do we escape with sense pleasures, you know, food, partying, drinking, smoking weed, um, but also we fight against it, right? We scream against it, we yell. Like, you know, in America, it's like orange man bad, or now it's like Biden's an idiot. And it's like, I don't know. I think when you feel triggered, you have to like go within. It's not necessarily someone outside of you, it's something inside of you. Um, I notice it currently right now, um, being back in California and when I'm with the national team, I should do it, but I don't do a very good job of prioritizing meditation. When I'm in Poland or in America, it's easy to have a routine. And uh, I think the quickest way to realize the power of meditation is doing it for a block of time and then not doing it and see how quickly you are triggered. And so being back home and just getting triggered pretty easily. And I have to have that foresight where it's not necessarily that person in a situation it's uh, the lack of work i'm doing so i think when these negative emotions come i have like some little tricks uh, i like the this is good because sticky note i have on my fridge where it's like find the solution like rather than like rant complain talk about the problems like find the solution like something good can come from this if you choose or just simply with meditation is just observe it, you know, don't push it away. Don't repress it. Don't suppress it. Just like observe it. Like, what's going on? Why do I feel this way? Go even deeper by writing about it. But, uh, I just, and I don't blame people necessarily, but just the environment that we're in with so much stimulation, people don't feel they have the time to reflect on themselves actually being the problem. I think that there's a analogous relationship between antipsychotic drugs and meditation and the way that they impact people over time. 
Mm. And that's a maybe strange analogy to make, but I'll try to put it together. And with antipsychotics, often people will get on them and feel much better. And then as time goes on, they'll want to get off of them because of how they make them feel bad. Mm. And I think that with meditation, it's similar in the way that once you start meditating and after a while, things start to go really well, at least in my experience, things start to you you end up being less anxious and you feel better generally. And then as time goes on, you feel le- le- more and more that you don't need this thing yeah. and that this is then the, the mean, this is the average, this is the normal. And then once you get off of it, you realize what it was actually doing and how it was impacting you during the time that you were doing it. 100%. And just like, well, it's always like, I don't have time for it. Like I do this myself, but it's like, you look at your phone, you look at the screen time of like Instagram and it's like hour and a half, two hours, three hours. It's like, maybe you have time for that. Uh, but I think it's difficult because you don't necessarily like feel it. Like you can go to a gym and work out and you're like, oh yeah, this is good. You eat a bunch of bad food and be like, oh, I'm getting like a little overweight. Like you can't actually like see it. But um, I think it's, I think it's good for me where I can feel it where it's like, I'm getting upset. I don't usually get upset when I experience these similar external circumstances, like or stimuli, like I need to meditate. And so, but uh, most people don't even get to that spot because I mean, from my, uh, from my uh, history of meditating, you need usually like three weeks to a month to like, then kind of wean off of it and realize that, okay, I don't have the benefits of meditation. And uh, I think that's the tricky part. It's like, how can we um, facilitate people meditating and meditating consistently? Um, and I, I think there's a lot of power possibly with the schools and even with coaches. But uh, I think for those two, there's not a lot of people that uh, have seen or felt the benefits of meditation. There's this really interesting neuropsychological phenomenon that occurs if you meditate after a bout of learning. So if you work in this ultradian rhythm, so it's about an hour and a half of a learning bout, and then after you have a non-sleep deep rest cycle, so whether that be, you can, you can do it so you're just laying down with your feet elevated and you just lay there for 20 minutes. And, or you can sit down and meditate for however long, and both of those end up consolidating the learned information far better than they would have if you just walked away or after you finish reading, you pick up your phone and look at something. So it seems to be an after the fact invest after the fact investment. And I think that that's even something to invest in as a coach or a teacher is rather than teaching for two hours or rather than having a two hour practice, you just have an hour and a half practice or hour and a half teaching bout. And then for the next 20 minutes, you sit down and everyone meditates. And that actually over time will have a larger benefit than the additional time will interesting so kind of acts as like a a nap with Mm -hmm. regards to the learning consolidation yeah huh and that's fast i i haven't heard that that's really interesting yeah super cool stuff when did you start meditating i started meditating in 2014 in brazil started using um, headspace to kind of deal with the the looming anxiety playing in uh, the Brazilian Super League. What was that like? That's a uh, that's that at the time that was probably one of the best leagues in the world. What yeah. Like, yeah. So it was like another moment where I was like salvation, right? Because my first year of college, I didn't have a contract, 
the next two years I, I played in Finland, which is one of the lowest leagues in the world. And after that, I finally got my big break outside of Finland, but only to play in the B League of France. And so that fourth year as a pro, uh, fifth year total after college, I, I was able to sneak into Brazil. Um, and I definitely wasn't ready mentally or emotionally as uh, the Brazilian style of volleyball is much more different than uh, North American or North Americans like, all right, like try the skill. If you don't get it, we're going to support you. Like, let's just make sure your effort's good and we'll have this growth mindset. And Brazil is like, fucking figure it out. <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> be better. <laughs> and uh, I took it really personally because I just kind of sort of equated uh, how they were reacting with the American school. And I just assumed everyone hated me because they were reacting like this. But later I realized they were reacting like this because that's just how they are. Even with guys that they love or like off the court, they do the same thing and like curse at them, yell at them terrible body language, like throwing like this. And I was just like, I was so insecure. And I was like, oh man, these guys, first off, they think I'm a bad volleyball player. And then second, they don't like me. And I just became like incredibly insecure, uh, nervous, fearful. And I had kind of heard about meditation, maybe benefits for athletes. And I was like, well, I probably try it. <laughs> for sure, now is the best time. And so, yeah, I just started slowly with Headspace. Um, you know, didn't really like solve any problems, but um, I think it was a, it started to build the foundation of being more mindful and conscious of these uh, negative emotions or these thoughts that were inside my head that before kind of had ruled me. And now I was able to uh, just observe them. What do you mean by that? What was, what was the switch where you realized that these people maybe didn't hate you, but they actually wanted the best for you? And, yeah. that, and then the way that they manifested that feeling towards you was your interpretation was actually the thing that ended up being the negative. And correct me if I'm wrong on any of that, but what was the point that switched for you where you went, okay, these people actually want the best for me and they're trying to push me to be my best. And the way that I'm interpreting it is that they hate me, but they really don't. It maybe not, might not be even they wanted the best for me, but they wanted me to be better, right? better for the team. Uh, it was kind of at the end of the season when I realized like one day they were doing it to this guy named Pato, which means duck in Portuguese. <laughs> but, uh, and he was like the coolest guy in the team. Everyone liked him. He's a really good player. And they were doing it to him. And I was like, wow, do they like not like Pato too? I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And then it finally clicked. I was like, oh, that's just like their way to push players. It's like, uh, what's the phrase? It's like iron sharpens iron. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's just a freaking alpha society down there. Like, it's just, it's not that it's bad. It's just different. And, mm -hmm. and maybe it's kind of comparable to like, you know, NBA, where it's just like dog eat dog, but they just, they're just really uh, hard on each other. And after that, I realized it's like, oh, maybe it's not just me. Maybe it's 
Like that's just the way. And so I just realized from there, I was like, wow, I was taking all these things way too personally. And that kind of helped free me up to, to finish the season a lot better than uh, in the middle of the season was going. Do you think that meditation practice that you took up, was that before that? And do you think that allowed you to step outside of yourself and realize that this was happening to other people? You know, I think the benefits really took a while um, because I think like most people, I believe like I'm the only one experiencing this suffering or this insecurity or, or this anxiety. And I started to realize that more people, a lot of people experience this just because how open I am with Instagram. And I just, whoever wants to write me, they can write me and I'll respond unless it's something that's like absurd or like they're an Indian sports company trying to sell me stuff. <laughs> but uh, I just started to realize like everyone would write me and they're like, I feel so anxious. I feel so insecure. And they just feel that no one else on their team in their life feels this. And then I was like, Oh, that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> and uh, I think that was a, that was a great moment to feel because uh, not only for myself, but kind of having this information and being able to write, connect with more people and let them know that like, Hey, it's not just you, it's me. And it's hundreds, not thousands and millions of other people. But like, here's some of the tools that have helped me and maybe they can help you too. How do you deal with social media? Do you find that you are uh, more volatile emotionally when you're consistently on social media or what's your relationship with, with that like? Mm, I mean, as long as I'm meditating, I think meditation pretty much solves everything. Uh, I don't want to be on social media. Uh, I think when I move around a lot, I don't have good routines, like going to Italy, small training block in California. I travel somewhere else. It's just kind of like this twitch or it's just like forward, look, forward, look. So when I'm overseas, I usually, I usually am pretty, mm, pretty disciplined. Uh, I'll have a rule where I just don't open Instagram until uh, my last practice of the day. And when I'm able to do that, I'm able to get into um, a really good flow state and just get things accomplished that I believe are important to me. Uh, as it being more volatile, I'm, I'm sure I am, but I don't feel it necessarily uh, unless I'm not meditating. But uh, also, I I try to cons I try to be very intentional with what I consume. I and I say that still saying like I consume too much, but you know most of the stuff I consume it's maybe a close group of friends or like some like spiritual like memes. So it's nothing that like too crazy. I you know I try to stay away from politics at, at all costs. Just this like false dichotomy. Like, uh, I feel there's any, any time, like, like Twitter, for example, that's like all it is, just this anonymity that breeds so much hate and uh, duality. But uh, long story short, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm a little more volatile, but um, I think with meditation, it kind of dissolves um, what um, I'm taking away from social media. 
how has your meditation practice manifested over the past years? Are you still using Headspace or have you moved on? Yeah, I'm not using Headspace. Um, I did a Vipassana after my season in 2017. And after that, I was like, or Vipassana for people that don't know, that is uh, um, the one I did actually, because it varies, was a 10 day silent meditation uh, retreat. And uh, so for those 10 days, all you can do is walk, meditate, eat, sleep. Got to give your phone, computer away. You're not supposed to journal. You're not supposed to really exercise or do yoga. Like you're just there to, to meditate. You're, you're not supposed to talk. You're not even supposed to look at other people in the eyes. And so after that, I mean, 10 hours a day of meditation for 10 days straight, I was like, um, I don't think I need Andy from Headspace anymore. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just a really basic practice. Uh, just uh, focusing on the sensation of the breath coming into my nostrils and leaving my nostrils. And then uh, when I get lost in thought, as everyone will in meditation, uh, I'll just try to observe it as quickly as possible, being lost. And a couple routes, so I go from there. One, say, having a creative thought. It's like, oh, this is a great idea. Because I, I think the best, the best ideas come in like stillness, right? Where we have that space. Like, this is a great idea. So I just kind of let it play in my head and just kind of go with it. And like, okay, it's really interesting. Okay, okay, okay. When I've had enough, it's like, okay, back to the breath. Maybe if I uh, have a negative emotional trigger <laughs> um, experience, I just observe it. You know, I'm not trying to push it away, run away from it, or hide from it. Just observe it. Like, well, am I feeling this? What's going on? And just like sit with it kind of until I find a solution or until it dissolves. And then the third situation, it's like, all right, like I'm thinking about something that really doesn't matter at all. I'm just, just the thinking mind going, like, let's just return to the sensation of the breath. And then I begin again. How did you feel approaching your Vipassana and what did it feel like when you had completed it? Yeah, I was oblivious. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was like, so the first day, you know, you can talk to people and like, oh, I'll be fine. It's just mental toughness. Like, oh. and then by day four, I'm just like, oh my God, what did I sign myself up for? <laughs> just a lot of like pain, like, I'm going to say so much mentally or emotionally, because I know that can bring out a lot of people. Clearly, I had a, it seems in the Vipassana meditation, I had a, a very safe childhood. As I know for a lot of people, it brings up a lot of uh, suppressed experiences, moments, emotions. Um, luckily, I didn't experience that. But just the pain of sitting, like it hurts. It hurts sitting 10 hours a day, not really having any breaks. And once you go over 30 minutes, it starts to hurt. So it's just sitting with that. And you know, there's a couple different different themes that everyone experiences. Mm, impermanence, right? This, this this pain is real. 
but eventually it's not going to be there. Such is life. Everything that you experience is impermanent. So just being able to have that foresight, um, equanimity, where it's like you can focus on the pain or maybe just focus on the sensation. Sensation isn't one way or another, just sensation. And then the power of getting too high or too low is really important too. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, when they were talking about music and like how it's important to have equanimity towards music. I was like, this is the stupidest thing ever. Like, why would I not want to get excited about music? But of course there's like that duality, right? Say like when I was younger, I go to a club. I was like, this is a great song. Like, yeah, I'm having such a good time. Like, whoa. And another song comes on and it's like a song you don't like or a song that brings up a bad memory. And you're like, now I'm having a terrible time. I want to leave. This isn't right. It's like, wait, what? Like a song has that much of an influence of like who I am, how I feel and wanting to party all night long to wanting to go home. So, um, you know, through that, through that pain, there was a lot of great lessons. And then going into the ninth day, you know, I was just like suffering, suffering, suffering. And then the 10th day, once you could like or 11th day, sorry, once you can talk again, it was like the best feeling ever to have like that human interaction again and like to talk about it. I had this experience, I had that experience, oh my God. And uh, almost kind of what's going on right now in reality where it's like, we just need connection. Like as humans, we're not meant to be isolated from each other. So I think uh, it's, it's necessary in the Vipassana, but it's really difficult to, to not speak, to not connect, to not look in people's eyes and just be alone. And when you are alone, I think you learn a lot much more, but of course it's, there's a lot of discomfort that is experienced through those 10 days. I remember on my 11th day, I came out and this guy and I made eye contact and both of us just started weeping. I saw yeah. a little tear in his eye and then yeah. I started crying as well. And then we just started hugging and everyone yeah. just started hugging each other. And it was this, it was this very, very cool experience. And it was something past language. We didn't talk. I didn't speak Hindi, but we just embraced big hugs all around. Yeah. I mean, my girlfriend was like, Oh, I think I want to do a Vipassana. I was like, well, just wait for me. Cause I want to do, I didn't want to do another one too. There's just uh, there's a lot of power that can come from it. And, yeah, after that day, I think connection with other humans just becomes, you realize how powerful and how important it is. What was it like hearing your own voice after all that time? <laughs> I don't remember, actually. I just, I just remember being so, like, happy and being, like, freed of, like, pain. <laughs> I was just like, man, I just don't want to sit anymore. I mean, I get to the point where I did have like kind of some breakthroughs. Um, I forgot what the name of this was, where it was like this, you know, I, I wanted to have these like sankaras, which I shouldn't have because that's like kind of the rule. It's like, you don't, you're not supposed to like research what people experience, right? Cause that, brings upon craving and craving of that experience that you may or may not have 
but speaking with the teacher, he's like, all right, just focus on your breath, focus on your breath. Like really focus on your breath, like everything you do, walking, eating. So I just had like this intense focus and like, I got to the point where it's like, the pain just like went away. I felt like my body like radiating and it was like bliss. And it was like such a crazy feeling. I was like freed of pain, free of like worried anxiety. And, uh, and that lasted for like maybe a half a day. It was like this like deep flow of like bliss. And then uh, at the end, the guy sitting next to me, he was like, he's like, dude, day seven, what happened? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, man, I felt you. It's like, what now? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, man, I felt you on my body. Like, I, you were like radiating heat. And that was like the day where it's like, that was kind of switched on. So, I don't know. It was a really interesting experience, but um, just becoming very clear of some underlying um, values in life that I, I didn't have before that I believe are very beneficial. And then just the, the power of going within. And I think we're, we have so much strength inside of us, but rarely do we access it. There's a, there are a lot of prison systems now, particularly in India, that offer Vipassana meditation. Amazing. And yeah, it has uh, very cool long-term effects. It's super interesting because women drop out at a far lesser rate than men do. Oh. Yeah. What is that? I'm not sure. I think uh, if I were to analyze it psychologically, I would say that it's probably something to do with the cohesiveness of a group. And I don't think men are as well integrated into their group settings as women are. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, man, the world would be such a great place if more people meditated. <laughs> but for sure, they did Vipassana's. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine? I can't. I actually can't. It was, uh, yeah, I think I had a very similar experience to you in terms of pain. I remember begging the, whatever he was, the guru at the front for, to sit on a chair because my, I thought that I was getting nerve damage in my knees and my hips from <laughs> sitting cross-legged. And he said something similar to the idea of equanimity. He said, just observe it. It's, and then there were other people that were able to sit on chairs or they had some kind of adjusted seating and he, he got really close to me and he said, look at them. Said, They're not going to get as much as you if you accept this yeah. and actually move into it and become one with it. Those, yeah. people, those people are going to get their experience, but it's not as much as if you commit to this. Yeah, 100%. And I was pretty, I was pretty mopey about that. It's like, oh, okay. My knees yeah. really hurt, but okay. Well, I was just like, it's crazy too, because like you think about it, it's like, how are everyone else doing this? Like I'm an athlete, like in the best shape of my life and I'm struggling. A lot of people like out of, out of shape, 30, 40, 50 years old. But you know, that's like the same thing. It's like uh, the message I received in my DMs, everyone's experiencing that suffering. And everyone's thinking that they're the only ones experiencing that suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting the the amount that we're siloed from one another, and I'm not sure what that is. Whether this is a a sense of pride that's associated with 
people not feeling the negative sides of emotion or whether there's a maybe a sense of despair and shame for feeling the way that they feel but there seems to be a lack of vulnerability and openness associated with negative emotion and feeling it i think it's just insecurity right like everyone wants to be valued everyone wants to be loved and by sharing like well like this is i'm, I'm assuming this is how they perceive it because this is how i've perceived it it's like mm -hmm. Well, I'm actually not as good, as cool, as successful, as smart as you thought. And then, okay, now this person is going to perceive me differently or not want to be my friends or not value me, not look up to me, not see me as a mutual. I think that's kind of where it comes from, especially in America where everyone's striving to be better, striving to get more power. By saying stuff like that, you assume that it's going to have the opposite effect. I'm going to lose power. I'm going to lose respect. I think that's just my guess. That's where it comes from because that's how I felt in a lot of the instances in the past with maybe not playing, being benched, not traveling. I don't really feel so keen on sharing these things because people, I assume people think of me a certain way and tell them that I'm a little bit less than that. It's like, oh, well, uh, that doesn't sound so good for me. But I think there's a lot of like real, real strength and real power that comes from being vulnerable and like being open with people. Because so I think people are just waiting for someone to say something so they too can be vulnerable. It's like almost like a, in class or something, it's like, teacher says to raise their hand and you're like, I really want to raise my hand, but like, I don't know. And someone does it first and you're like, then you start seeing more people raise their hands. So I think uh, as a collective, more people are starting to do that. And this ripple effect is coming where people can be uh, more vulnerable. I also think it's like people are abusing it, becoming like this ego trap where it's like, I'm gonna be vulnerable to be more popular. But uh, still, I think it's, it's good. I think we're in the right direction. How do you cope with the self-realization that you're not all that you could be, or maybe not all that people think that you are? Mm, yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Because in life, there's just always more. It's like a great theme of like the Stoics is this hedonic adaptation. Like you can always be more popular. You can always have a prettier girlfriend, always have a nicer house, more money in the bank account, more money in crypto, you know, whatever it may be. The Dogecoin. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's tough. Uh, when you're thinking along the lines, along the lines of that, like last year I was cut from the national team. I was like, well, that sucks. And then I was like, well, like no longer like Dustin White in Team USA, like, feels like almost if you have these badges like for your ego and like someone takes it off it's like no longer you have that but um i think that's where meditation again comes in where it's like you have to go within and find what's important to you what are your values what are your priorities um and then just be your best version day after day consistently yeah. when you can be of value to the community.
that's where I kind of come back to. And uh, I love this mantra. It's like, what does my highest version look like at this exact moment? It's like when I'm in doubt, just keep on going back to that, back to that, back to that, back to that. I'm not playing in the game. You know, I have these thoughts of like, I wish I was playing like at the minimum to the maximum where it's like, this is bullshit. Like I should be playing. Why, why is this happening? And I think the one thing that helps me reset is just, again, um, what does my highest version look like at this exact moment? My highest version isn't full of resentment, complaining, frustrated. It's staying ready, supporting my teammates that are on court, uh, keeping the teammates that are off the court engaged, you know, for a particular example. And I think just coming back to that phrase over and over and over, like today, it's like, what does my highest version look like? Okay, I need to like get clear on, uh, you know, uh, my partnerships I'm working on right now, make sure I'm doing everything I need to. I need to declutter my room. I'm at my parents' house for a couple of days until I move, like start like simplifying my life and like uh, get stuff going with noisy buckets and finish some emails. That's what my highest version looks like, you know, but you know, maybe I go on social media, I see this and that and that. And it's like, oh man, I could be doing that. I could be doing this. Why am I not there already? It's like, no, 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 I like, let's, let's dial it in and like get really specific to like this moment this particular moment, what can I do? So um, I think always just coming back to, to this moment and it's like asking yourself, like, you know, my best version, you know, maybe if I, I want to start a business, it's like, I got to start focusing on that. Maybe it's, I want to be my best volleyball player. I got to like do some core, roll out my body, watch some video. And so it's always different, you know, whoever you may be, whatever your subjective view on life is, but I think it's just a simple question that's very empowering and kicks you away from this, uh, this ambiguous future that we fear that we can't live. It's just like, no, 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 no. Like this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment. Do you think that that feeling is similar to being in alignment with yourself? Yeah. I think it's important to get clear on your values and priorities. Like for a while before I got to Brazil, I was like, well, to be happy. And I just believe there's a straight correlation. It was like, we'll be on a good team, make a lot of money, play in a good league, have a hot girlfriend or girls love me, be popular, be famous, be on the national team. I thought it's like a straight correlation to being happy. I got to Brazil and I was able to play with a couple of players that had all of those things, like so rich, like Brazil is a huge, like contrast in wealth. So rich driving around Range Rovers, beautiful wives, beautiful family, always on TV. Um, they've won like every gold medal you can imagine. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> uh, but they were just so miserable, especially to people, especially seeing how they treat people that couldn't offer anything to them. And uh, after a couple months, I was just like, man, like, I don't know about this. Like, is that where I want to go? And then a couple of days later, I was, uh, I, I didn't play a match. They sat me. I wasn't playing that well. And uh, I was sitting next to this kid and uh, his mom cleaned our locker room in Brazil. And she was making like maybe 20 bucks a week. And he was like 14 and he would come out, 
help her. And I just assumed he would be ashamed. Like, oh, I have to help my mom clean the locker room. Like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. But he was always happy and always did it. And in my broken Portuguese, he had like a, like a shanky, like Puma watch, like a knockoff. And I was like, hey man, like really cool watch in Portuguese. Like, I really like it. And he said, oh, thanks. Two days later, him and his mom came up to me like before practice. And the mom was like, he wants you to have the watch. And I'm like, come on, like I can buy like 2000 of these watches. Like, you know, thinking in my head, like, oh, like I can buy a watch. Like, and I was like, no, 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 like politely, like, no, thank you. And she was like, no, like he wants to give you the watch. And then he was like, please take my watch. And I was like, okay, yeah, like I can't say no. So I took the watch and after that, like things really started to change, right? I was like, what are my values and priorities? Just to get rich, just to have money, just to, for all these things that like really aren't real. It's like this fake illusion of like worth or sense of self and so i was like you know what i want to be like these two people like i want to give i want to be loving uh, i want to take less i don't necessarily want to be poor like dirt like they're like dirt poor i was like i don't know if i want to be dirt poor you know but can there be a balance and that's when i started like uh, i found eckhart tolle and i started reading more mindfulness spiritual books going in a little bit to like to the east uh, with regards to like pursuing Buddhism and seeing all the all the amazing uh, alignments between Buddhism and Stoicism but it's just like man I gotta get clear on like what's important to me and I think what's important what's important to me is enriching and empowering other people's journeys so I think in a weird way still playing with USA Volleyball, still being a professional athlete, I think I can connect at a much larger rate with those other athletes. So there is like kind of a clinging to still being that person. But at the same time, it's like, if those things were to drop, maybe I have more free time, maybe I have more energy, or be, maybe I have more of a need to commit to that work, to be of more service. And so it's like, mm, Kind of going off on a tangent but it's just this thought of like surrendering um just like and i don't know what life has in store for me i don't know what source universe god is gonna take away from me or give to me but it's just like continue to surrender and that doesn't mean like to give up it's like whatever's in front of me i'm gonna do the best job i can commit to it like all my heart all my energy and if something happens and it takes that away from me just like surrender to what's happened and just like be very curious and open to what life is making room for me to move into. I had this really interesting conversation yesterday with a friend, Emma, and we talked about what it means to identify as something mm -hmm. and what it means to identify with something and the impacts of those, especially if they are transient in essence. So when you identify with being, for me, I used to identify with being an athlete or you identify with being a volleyball player, basketball player, a high grade student or any of those things. And what ends up happening when those things leave is that a part of your personality leaves with them. Mm -hmm. And so I've started to identify more with things that 
aren't transient and that I can subscribe to as part of my personality rather than something that could potentially leave me at any point. So it's something that I could have if I'm homeless or if I'm the richest person in the world. And I think something very interesting about the story you told with the boy in the Puma watch is that often when people subscribe to things that are transient, they, they end up being so attached to those things and those things are the only things that can bring them pleasure. And in turn, those things also bring them suffering. And that's the, that's the fundamental Buddhist tradition is that the suffering is brought on by desire and craving. Mm-hmm. And desire is the root of all suffering. <laughs> yeah, let me see if I can find uh, I found a stupid meme on Instagram today. Uh, let me see. But uh, it's the same thing. Uh, let's see. So it was, uh, 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 so it was like a barber. It's like, what do you want? And like, it's like nothing. Desire is the root of all suffering. And the barber's like, say no more. And it's like a guy like cutting like a Buddha's hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, well, as an athlete too, it's like, you've played in those games where it's like, you have an attachment to like, oh, this is an easy team. We should win. And then the game starts and it's like five, one other team. And it's like, that's not how this is supposed to go. And then you get flustered, you get frustrated, you get tense, you start to push more, start to make more errors. And it's just like, you don't need to do that. But because maybe in the beginning of the game, the coach is like, let's go out and win 3-0. Now you have like this attachment to something that you don't have complete control over. And because you have this attachment, when it's not working out, now you start to hurt yourself even more by pressing and pushing. And so I completely agree. It's the same thing with people that are like, you know, you ask them like, what's, or like, who are you? And it's like, well, first and foremost, like I'm a dad, I'm a mom. It's like, no, you're not like at any time like that can be taken away from you. Then who are you? You know, then you're someone that has like depression. And it's a, it's a big like stoic thought, right? It's like, yeah, we're going to grieve, but like, how long do we need to grieve? Do we need to grieve for 10 years, five, five years? You know, what is, what does that process look like? And with the attachment, I think we, it prolongs our suffering. People may, may grieve their entire lives because they believe that they lost something that was in quotation theirs. It's like, no, everything is, everything's on rent from the universe. Nothing is ours. I think we need to have that uh, detachment, even though it's really difficult. But that attachment can bring um, so much more joy and love. Uh, Stoics have a practice called negative visualization. Or when I first read it, I was like, that's stupid. Second read it, I was like, that's pretty dark. Third time I read it, I was like, that makes sense. So they give an example of like two fathers putting their daughter to bed at night. Um, one puts the daughter in bed and says, I love you and I'll see you tomorrow. The other one puts the daughter to bed, says, I love you. And like imagines like losing her and the feelings and the emotions that would come up from losing his daughter, knowing that at any time he can lose her. The next day, 
you know, the first father. Yeah. Good morning. How are you? You know, it's good to see you. Okay. Bye. Second father, just like that, like deep, overwhelming gratitude for another day with his daughter, knowing that any day he could lose her. And instead of, you know, maybe reading the newspaper or on the phone or sorry, I have a call. I can't do this. It's like, you're that much more present with them knowing that any time they can be taken away from you. Right. When that first father loses his daughter, it's in like, he's going to grieve like crazy because he wasn't present for her. He always thought he had another day or there was going to be that wedding, et cetera, et cetera. The second will grieve, but know that in the back of his mind that he was as present as possible with her and he was the best father possible because he knew at any time he could lose that daughter. You know, I, I thought a lot about negative visualization in the sense of what humans are potentially capable of and that we wouldn't want to be capable of. I read this in a book that Freud wrote where he said that man is the wolf of men. And in some way, I think that references this study that was done by a guy named Milgram. And he took groups of people and put them into a room in which they had, they, they, the, the essence of the study was that they were testing how positive punishment. So you're giving pain to someone in hopes that they'll not do the thing that they're doing currently in the future, how positive punishment could be used to teach people. And that was the cover story that they gave, but really they were trying to figure out how many people were willing to kill someone else. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was they had one guy in a room with a circuit board in front of him. And in the room adjacent, there was another guy and anytime the guy in the room adjacent got a question wrong because they would ask him a series of questions. And if he got the question wrong, they would give them a shock. Mm. And each time that he gave him a shock, he would move to a higher electrical pulse. So it got more and more intense over time. And finally there was the last one where it was uh, this triple X. If you touch this button, you're going to kill the person. And there was a doctor standing beside him and the doctor said, no, please continue. Anytime there was protest from the participant, he would say, please continue. This is part of the study. Please continue. You need to continue. And the guy in this adjacent room keeps saying, please, I have a heart condition. I can't breathe. My heart's beating really fast. I don't know what's happening. Please stop. And even when the guy in the adjacent room had passed out, supposedly, because this is coming from speakers, you can't actually hear the guy in the next room. Mm -hmm. And the doctor would still say, please continue. And Milgram did this experiment after the, uh, I want to say it was the, the Geneva Convention after World War II, as a lot of the Nazis had used the, the excuse of being under orders for why they had committed the atrocities that they had. Yeah. And the way that I associate that with negative visualization is that 66% of people were willing to kill someone in an everyday experiment where they had the freedom to leave, but they were being told to stay or being told to continue by a doctor. Mm. And so under some kind of authority were more than likely willing to end someone's life under that authority. And the way that I try to use negative visualization in that sense, the way that I see the correlate between the two is that if you, if you are aware of the things that you're potentially capable of, you're far less likely to do them when you're actually faced with the situation. You can go through all of life saying, no, I'd never do this. No, I'd never do that. And then once you get into that stage of being face to face with that, what are you actually going to do? what's going to happen when you're face to face with the, the devil and you're looking in a mirror. 
Yeah, I think we're just overall in North America, we're just so conditioned to um, authority, starting from the schools, just like we have no option. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if your teacher's stupid or unresponsible, or I don't think there's many out there, you know, maybe like a drunk. It's just like you have to obey. And it's just like, what else can you do? Then you get to adulthood, and it's like, I've talked to a lot of people, you know throughout this past year, well, they're like, well, I, I didn't want to do this one thing, but my boss said I had to. And so I had to do it. And it's just like, yeah. And it's just like, that's sad. It's just like going into this year, if there's some things that like my club says I need to do, I'm going to tell them no. And if the, it eventually it's like, if you don't do it, you have to, you you can't play for us. Like fine, you know, I'll make my bed. Like, but I'm just, I'm not going to give on on the, the values or the things that are important to me. And I just don't think a lot of people like have that time and space to realize like what is important to me, what are my values, why am I doing these things for? Because most of the people are just doing it for money, and money can never run out. You can always have more money, so you can always have less and less values. Wow, that's a very sobering thought. I've I've been exploring lately the vaccine protocols and particularly the potential alternative treatment devices that could be used that appear to be safer and potentially as effective as vaccines. Yeah. And, uh, the one that I'm thinking of in particular is ivermectin, which is a prophylactic that was founded in Japan about 40 years ago. So it has a a very good safety record as it's been used in South Africa for the past 40 years to treat elephantitis and river blindness. And it seems to, anytime that it's introduced to a wide scale populace, the rates of COVID and COVID deaths drop precipitously. So, and it's also been censored on YouTube. And yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> which, which is unbelievably interesting. And that's something that I'm trying to uh, discuss more is the idea of, free speech and critical thought in these things where just because somebody says that something is uh, safe in the present doesn't mean that it's going to be safe forever for people, especially young people. And I hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was referring to. You know, I've, I've spoken of a lot of people that just to get in to do their job for USA volleyball, they, they have to get a vaccine for me. I was like, from day one, it's like, they, they called me and they wanted me to come back and they're like, all right. Um, also like we, we, we would like, you know, it was like a suggestion. We would suggest you to get a vaccine. I'm just like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> for me, I like, I, for example, I had, I had COVID and it was like one night of fever, two days of feeling lethargic. Third day I woke up and I felt great. And I was like, no, I'm not taking a vaccine. Like, um, I, you know, I have to go so deep, but it's just like, you know, like, I think it's a slippery slope for um, medical freedom. And I just don't think it's uh, very genuine what's happening right now, where you see um, a lot of pharmaceutical companies making trillions of dollars just in quarters, mm-hmm. seeing a lot of corporations get behind it. And you're seeing arguably um, a section in society of those who have got it and may 
go back to returning and living a normal life and those that don't that you know might not be able to uh, go see a show go see sports travel so it's very um it's very interesting times we are living in right now but it's like i just really want to have i want to help people just think a little bit more critically like you've done where it's like is there a better way or do we just trust big pharma who will make trillions of dollars of us taking the vaccine or not make as much money if we don't and it just doesn't seem very sincere or genuine and i think people can think however they want but important thing is that they think critically and i just don't think that's happening right now and i think it's almost by design as you see uh, commercials pepsi uber twitter facebook um, celebrities sports stars politicians you know like kind of doing the, the dance like oh look how easy it is like i took it uh, i was looking to get an uber today and uber is offering free rides to people to get their vaccination mm-hmm. just like okay like that's interesting but um yeah, I just, I just feel uh, people's ability to think critically is just uh, getting worse and worse because we're being divided so quickly where it's either you're on this side or you're that side and you have no other choice. You know, you're red, you're blue, you're up, you're down, you are anti-vax or you are trusting the science. It's just like, mm, these are just dualities. These are false dichotomies. These aren't real. It's not a way, it's not a human life. It's not one side or the other. You said you've talked to a lot of people about it. What are the responses that you've tended to get from people that are in disagreement with the decision that you've made? Yeah. Um, not a lot of people are in disagreement, of course. Um, and I get like where USA Volleyball is coming from. I totally get it where they want to make sure they're doing everything possible to not get a positive test because then they'd have to adhere by the government standards where you have to sit this much time out, you have to be at home for this amount of time and they just don't have that time. So um, there's that thought where it's like, we just need you to do it. So like we have a less chance of someone getting it in practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll put stuff once in a while on Instagram, not trying to say like one way or another, just to help people think a little bit more like, oh, that's interesting. But of course, you can tell that, you know, I'm not so pro <laughs> vaccine, uh, or, or at least this, I, I don't even think you can call it a vaccine, right? It's, COVID, COVID vaccine hesitant, mRNA technology vaccine hesitant, maybe would be the, the most nuanced yeah. way to describe it. Because yeah. as you said, there's, it's not anti-vax, it's a whole new category of thought with this particular situation. And I mean, yeah, anti-vax is just, uh, what, what it's called the term, but it's just able to, to flood everyone into this one group of just mm-hmm. like, whatever it's like, science disbelievers, or it's, uh, I mean, science is becoming the new religion where it's like, there's like a God and it's just like a scientist now. Uh, but anyways, uh, most people just said that uh, it's like, oh, you're selfish or you could be killing people. And, uh, you know, what's your thought? Let's, let's talk to them. You know, I'm not afraid to, to share my beliefs. 
uh, or my hesitancy towards it. And, and usually, you know, we have a good talk. And at the end, there's like a, some form of mutual respect where they're like, oh, okay. Because what they're taking is just like, you know, it's the news or Instagram and Twitter and, and they just believe it. It's like bless their souls for just <laughs> being able to be so easily conditioned, I guess you could say, or to just, just to believe, right? To be so gullible. And I think for a lot of things, I am very gullible too. But something like this, it just, it just never really um, sat right with me. I think it was especially because of uh, the solutions that were being offered. There was no solutions for uh, longevity or like real holistic health. Or some of the things that initially came out was like stay inside. It's like, okay, there's a lot of like chemicals inside. It's probably not good. We go outside, we get vitamin D, don't see friends. Okay, it's known through uh, a lot of studies, uh, the blue zones as well. When we, uh, when we see friends, when we see family, uh, it's able to relieve stress, able to get back in, uh, into the, shoot, what's it called? Uh, parasympathetic nervous system, right? And our body able to do what it needs to do and heal itself. Like our body is a beautiful machine. So uh, initially too, it's just like all these things that were being told to us or solutions or the real solutions, right? It's like, wash your hands. It's like, okay, that's great. It's like, is that it? Like, eat some root vegetables, you know? Mix in turmeric and ginger in your smoothie. Make sure you're getting eight hours of sleep, you know? There's so many different things that they could uh, empower or enrich the public with. You know, make sure we're not spending so much time on social media. Make sure you go, maybe you don't see a friend inside, but you go on a walk with someone outside. Real, sincere, genuine solutions. Instead, it's like, the only solution is just like a handout from like, like a daddy government. Please help us. Daddy pharmaceutical company. Give me the shot. Give me the pill. And it's just, it just, I don't know. Uh, it just never really sat well with me, especially now where it's like, there is no choice. It's like, you have to do this. And it's like, no, I can do whatever I want. Like someone asked me, it's like, if you were chosen for the Olympics, you know, how to get the vaccine, would you go? I was like, well, Olympics is a goal I've had my entire career. And no, like, I'm not going to consent. I think it's really important for people to, to be able to say that. Like, if something doesn't sit well with you, whatever it may be, like, don't consent. Like, as long as you're not doing malice or genuinely know you're not doing malice, like, no. It's like, I'll quit volleyball. It's like really easy for me doesn't like my values, my priorities. Like I'll quit it and I'll start my own life somewhere else. And uh, I think a lot of people feel that too, but a lot of people are very scared to express it because of the backlash now. Uh, this like woke mob who, again, just going back to like basic psychology, just want to feel loved and they're insecure and they're going to feel loved by telling other people how wrong they are. Yeah, it's uh, that's something that I've been trying to dissect over the past few weeks is what's actually going on with people not being able to have conversations with each other over things that they actually do believe in and having to keep things 
hush hush rather than being out in the open with what they're talking about because often you'll find people that do agree with you and the more that you're actually able to have conversations even with people that don't agree with you the more you're able to come to some kind of middle ground and the less that we have that opportunity the less we have the option or the opportunity to explore something in the middle or come closer to some form of truth and i think that that over time pulls groups apart and builds the walls between them i think it's difficult i think with this last presidency in america it's just i won't even say like i'm not a republican like i'm not a democrat but i think trump did a lot of like good things mm-hmm. but uh, the media just has destroyed him destroyed his followers and has just plaque wash like anyone that has remotely any feeling of sympathy or love towards him so i think a lot of people are scared because it's so divisive now and again it just goes back to this like dualities and it's like almost like divide and conquer right or we just fight amongst each other on trivial things um so leading to a story where i have a, I have a good friend like kind of a mentor of mine like very smart holistic great guy and he wrote me a a message out of the blue he's like i've seen some of the twitter posts that you've liked and i'm just so embarrassed and ashamed to call you like a friend and to be a mentor i'm just like man like come on or you got to be kidding here but it's just like how it is right it's like you have this subjective view on life Oh, that's that goes against how I believe it should be, or maybe what's more real is how the TV has told me I should believe, and therefore you're bad. And it's like, even if like, okay, even if I was like liking tweets from like ISIS or like Nazis or like the worst people possible, it's like, you don't just push someone off a cliff. It's like, hey man, what's going on? Like, why are you thinking this way? Like, so something that like, is going hard in your life, are you all right? Um, and I, I find it really interesting that people are just like disowned from their subjective views of life. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. There's like an objective viewpoint to, to love and peace and happiness and a better collective society. Because there isn't, right? Everyone has a subjective view. It could be with food. There's a lot of people I know that eat meat, you know? Ethically, it's probably not the best choice, but you know what? And that's your view. Like that's your path. You're on. Maybe one day you'll be plant-based. Maybe one day you won't. When I was first a vegan, I was like, everyone needs to go vegan. Everyone, everyone, everyone. And it's just like, no, like that's my subjective view. And like if other people want to do it, that's great. If friends come over, I'm gonna make them some bomb smoothie bowls, but I'm not gonna shame them for not having it or for eating meat. Like, that's not right. Everyone has a subjective viewpoint. But now it's becoming where it's like, you must have this objective viewpoint or you're bad. And there's no critical thinking behind it. It's like, you're like downloading and conditioned this objective viewpoint from media, from corporations. And it's just like, people don't understand. They don't like how they're coming to these viewpoints. It's just downloaded because the media they're watching or listening to, and it's, it's, it's really hard, you know, it's really hard when you see that happen to friends, but still it's like, for me, I just want to love them. You know, I want to love, I want to love, I want to love rather than like segregate or hate 
or push away. It's like, man, if you like this other political person or like if you like this other sports team, that's fine. You know what? Subjective, subjective. I think that's why people are afraid because the yells are just getting louder and louder and louder as like the war drums are beating from like news stations, from Buzzfeed, from Twitter, whatever it may be. And it's just like, people are being painted as like bad, as Nazis, as white supremacists. It's just not true, it's just false narratives. And it's sad to see people being so conditioned. And I think that's why people are so afraid to, to say how they feel because they feel they'll be ostracized, which once again goes back to human psychology, which is like, I wanna love, I wanna be loved. When did you start to realize this? What did you, when did you start to actually see this happening? I think with like the whole Trump thing, like I never really pay attention to Trump. And then uh, this past summer, I was like, all right, like I'll like give in. I'll like see what, like what's going on. Cause it was like, I was hoping it was like going to be Trump and Bernie. And I was like, oh, this would be some good dialogue. I, I was always hoping for Bernie. Yeah, it was just, yeah. And then, you know, one, it was just like, okay, like Bernie's like this straight up sellout. And I was like, that was a bummer to realize. And then uh, with Trump, I was like, man, he's done a lot of like great things. Like he helped middle America that was being sold out to China. A lot of blue collar workers that lost their jobs and had nothing else to do. Uh, one small thing I really liked that uh, he, uh, he, I think, I'm pretty sure he legalized hemp, which everyone's on the huge like environmental thing. It's like, this is the best thing ever to help to our planet is to once again, legalize hemp and we can move more back into hemp bottles, hemp paper, whatever it may be. And then uh, I forget the term, but uh, kind of like helping along the lines of uh, decriminalization of the small time drug offenses and getting people out of jail. And I was just like looking at some things. I was like, huh, that's interesting because when I thought of Trump, I was just like, you know, this Nazi white supremacist yelling, awful person, this sexual like animal. I started looking into it and I was like, okay, yeah, he still says stupid things, but it's just like, one, it's like, he's like, that's like his narrative. Like he's appealing to his audience. So it's like in a rhetoric style, it's like, okay, kudos. Like it's, it's not the right way to talk, but with regards to politics, it's like, yeah, he's appealing to his base. And then, uh, I don't know. I started looking at that and then just started seeing how like people who followed him were demonized. And I was just like, that's odd. And I don't know. And it just started to get more divided and divided in the summer, like the Black Lives Matter stuff, which should have been something like so genuine, sincere. That's dividing people now too. And it's just like, I just started becoming like very intrigued with like uh, things that the media is pushing. And it's not pushing real solutions. It's pushing mm, the problem. These people are the problem. That person's the problem. This group of people is the problem. And it's creating this like victim mentality where people are being told that they aren't good enough they aren't as equal, they aren't as great or as smart, or like this 
kind of like good racism where it's like these people are bad and it's like like let's fight racism by saying these people are bad and it's just like oh man i just don't get it because none of these solutions are like real they're not lasting they're not loving they're not compassionate they're not sincere and i i just had to think like huh and then i start seeing my friends get like more agitated more frustrated and if you talk about these things they get like really riled up you can't have this conversation right I think it's great. Like anyone disagrees with me, write me. We'll have a conversation. Like maybe I won't agree with you. Maybe you won't agree with me, but we can have a conversation and see where our hearts lie. Maybe I'm misled through ignorance. Maybe you're misled through like tribalism, whatever it may be, but let's have a conversation. Nowadays, you can't have a conversation. Just people yelling at each other, whether it's on Twitter or in person, you see if all these like riots and stuff like that. People don't know how to control their emotions. And I think it's because of this duality where it's like, this person's so bad. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That person's so bad. And then the people that like them are so bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just yelling and shouting rather than people like talking about it. Let's talk about it. Where does our heart lie? I want the community to be better, stronger. I want everyone to be treated equally. Well, you know what's going to happen on the other side? It's probably the same thing. Or we wish we could be led by these false narratives to push us as far as we can on the right, as far as we can, the left, as far as we can, blue, red, whatever it may be. And then once again, it's like, goes back to this divide, divide and conquer. We just like fight amongst each other, each other and like the real important things aren't addressed. I think that's something that I've realized a lot more lately and something that I've tried to understand more is, so there's this term Sonder and it's the, the realization that every individual has a life and intricate and complex as your own. And so I think that that's the base of empathy is understanding what people that maybe you don't know what people have been through, but you understand that whatever life you've had, they've also had a very difficult life because I think we've all had difficult lives. Yeah. And in the terms of politics, understanding that there's not some group of people that are evil and want to completely destroy the world. I mean, maybe there is at the, the very fringes, but <laughs> yeah. for the most part, you have the last election was, 50 50 and the same with the previous election it was pretty 50 50 so for one group of 50 percent to say well this other group are full of white supremacists and they want to murder everyone and they hate everything yeah. because the the orange man or this guy has dementia and he's a puppet for everything and yeah. they all want to destroy the world i think that's such a simplistic way to boil down and distill a entire set of opinions and if you go to each individual within those voting groups I'm sure 99.999% of the people are going to say, I just want the best for my community. I want the best for our country. I want the best for the people of the earth. And so yeah. everyone's fighting for the same thing, but the fact that our voices get louder and louder over each other only further divide those two groups from actually achieving that same thing. And something that I'm quite worried about is the, when people put forth information that one group maybe doesn't agree with, that person is, immediately ostracized one example that i can think of is uh so there's charles murray is one and he wrote the bell curve in the the late 1900s yeah that's right i think it was the 1960s or 80s but he wrote the bell curve and it was essentially looking at the disparities between different racial groups and he pretty much just slid it onto the table and said this is happening 
we need to address this. And then everyone said that he was a racist because they found disparities between different groups. And there are obviously disparities within groups as well. But he was just making a point that this was something that we had to address and what the root cause of it was and all these other things. Those are different conversations. But the fact that it's happening is something that if you sweep it under the rug, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And the, the other one that I was thinking of is, um, oh, I can't remember his name right now. Maybe it'll come back to me. But he, same thing, in the late 19th century, ni late 1900s, sorry, he wrote a, he wrote a report, the Moynihan Report, and he was writing about how the, the single parent household, the single parent rate among black yeah. households was increasing and increasing and increasing. Yeah. And he was chased out of the White House, essentially, because he brought this to light. And that number has continued to increase. And what he was doing was yeah. putting it out there and saying, hey, this is happening. We need to find a way to address it. And everyone pushed him out saying that he was a racist. And mm -hmm. something that a lot of people don't know is Moynihan was from a single parent household. His father left when they were, him and his brother were quite young and they had to work as shoe shiners to make ends meet. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was gonna say the same thing. I was like, I was honestly thinking to myself in my head, I was like, can I even say this? Like, cause same thing, like people are gonna react and be like, oh my God, you like racist. But it's like all the Black Lives Matter stuff. It's like, hey, like let's, let's address this because you can see the statistics where it's like, uh, the increase of like not graduating high school, of joining a gang, ending up in jail, like overdosing, becoming an alcoholic. Um, I, there's so many different things. And uh, I think starting in the was it 70s or 60s or 70s, it, it went like huge, right? With, I think with like the uh, crack, crack epidemic. Yeah. And but the thing is like, also too, it's like those numbers are continuing to rise side by side with the whites and like black families, right? Yeah. It's going like this. And uh, I, it was never addressed. And it's just like, man, let's get to the root. Like, let's get to the root of like, why these things are happening rather than just like saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it's just like, no, like, like let's come together as a community and address these things where we can fix and change them together. Like wherever we are, like we can start to like create a new. And like, like I said, it's happening with the Caucasian family as well. Like it's steadily inclining. It's inclining, inclining. It's like, why? Why are these things happening? It's like, well, maybe we don't know right now, but we should probably figure it out because it's a st statistics are quite clear. The men and even women out of these single mother households are not growing up with virtue, they're falling into gangs, they're already in poverty, and they're having the wrong role models and turning out to be people that do not benefit the community, people that commit more crime, that end up in jail quicker, don't have an education, that don't really serve a purpose. So, um, and I completely agree with you, and it's like, kudos to you for bringing that up, because I was thinking about it, I was like, man, do I even bring this up? Like. You know, people will listen to this and be like, oh, you're like a racist or you think of that. And it's just like, man, these are just like the, the facts. And like, we need to address these rather than just like finding the boogeyman, mm -hmm. yelling at someone, shouting at someone, 
telling a whole race that they're wrong just for like existing. And it just blows my mind. And going back to the whole like um, voting thing and like having good people on each side, it's like, it's really interesting. And like, whenever, whenever I have friends or family that travel, they're like, oh, we met this family. Oh, we met this people. We met these, uh, da, 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 da. and they're the nicest people. And it's like, I always think in my back ahead. I'm like, well, what were you expecting? Right? You watch the news. It's like, I have some Iranian friends. And like, when I was younger, I thought they were like all terrorists, you know? Mm -hmm. I have some Russian friends. When I was younger, I thought they were all just like gangsters. And it's just like, we need, we need to experience these people firsthand because if we don't, we'll be fed this like false narrative that everyone is a terrorist or a gangster or someone trying to like steal freedom because there's always going to be a boogeyman. That's the narrative to fear, 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 fear. Someone's coming to get you. Someone's going to hurt you. Someone's going to take your family away. And it's just all lies because when we're operating on fear, we just give in, we consent, we give away our freedoms. And I feel like that's just the, the case for 2021 or it's 2020. It's like same thing for me. Like when everything first started happening, I was so afraid. I was like, I need to get home. Da, 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 da. But then you just see like the narrative go. And it's just like, even as simple as like, they have like the death count on TV where it's like, it's going up. And it's like, well, what's going to happen? Are like people going to resurrect from the dead and like go down? So it's like so misleading, right? Oh, the death camp goes up again today. It's like, yeah, people are going to die. <laughs> but it's just, uh, it's just insincere how much fear is uh, spoon fed to us. And with that fear, we make terrible decisions. Or with that fear, we want to find who's wrong. Mm -hmm. Whose fault is it? Because we have to feel this way. God, there's this great quote from Thomas Sowell's that I have, and it's that a group that is exempt from criticism is not, sorry, I actually have it on my whiteboard. Being exempt from criticism is not a blessing, but it is a curse. And mm. I think that any, I think especially with the, the current media, it's that any form of criticism against that perspective or this or that, it makes you wrong. And I, I've discussed a few times the idea of the death of the devil's advocate, where we can't actually argue things from different perspectives, trying to paint a more complete picture. And that's something that I've seen happen more and more is people refusing to argue. You know, I, I have a friend, uh, Tyler Latwila, and I think his episode's dropping tomorrow, but we talked a lot about that. And what he does with some of his friends is he'll, they'll just pick a topic and then say they flip a coin and they decide who's going to argue what side. And I think that's something that so few people are able to do, which I think that is inherently bad because if you can't argue the opposite side, then kind of, as you've been talking about, then you've, you've been completely consumed by this voice and you're parroting something without knowing what the other side is besides hearing, I mean, hearing the arguments from the other side from someone that you're arguing with is not the most productive way to approach a situation or approach a discussion. The way mm -hmm. that I, the way that I think about it is when I, if I have an opinion about something, I'll tend to actually read as much as I can to disconfirm my bias. 
and then I'll go to the areas that I think that I'll agree with from the get-go. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, to the echo chamber is dangerous. That's just kind of where we are right now is in a society and a collective, especially anyone on Facebook or Instagram, they're just spoon fed what they want to hear. Um, like I said, like, um, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, but for a while I was like looking up stuff on Trump and then like Instagram would just give me like, all it was was like conservative like pages and stuff like that. And I would like flip through it and I was just like, no man, I don't want this. Like, no, 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 no. But that's what happens to like most of us. It's just like, whatever it is, like that's all we see. We only see like the side that we want to see, that we want to know is right. And, uh, and then someone else talks to us and, when I talked to my parents, they were just like, oh, that's impossible. That's a lie. That would never happen. Um, I was talking to a friend on the team. He was like, New York Times, that's a reputable like, newspaper. They would never lie. And I'm just like, oh, man, like, <laughs> I got news for you. <laughs> like, everything can be manipulated. Uh, but, man, I love that. I think that's, uh, that's where you need to go. It's like, see both sides of it. Because also, too, we're going to get played by our emotions, right? We're so easily played by our emotions or wanting to feel like we're virtuous. You know, we're, we're more virtuous because I got this shot. I'm more virtuous because I have this sign in my window. I'm more virtuous because I voted on this. I'm more virtuous because I voted for this person or I went to that rally. And it's just like, stop. Like, it's a lie. It's like, be virtuous with, like, your consciousness or, like, the daily actions that you do, but like being attached to an idea, a politician, like that's not where we need to be. We need to be able to think critically. And like you said, explore both sides, be curious about both sides rather than being so like confident and arrogant on one side where, you know, you can't talk to people, they just shut down. You have to use tricks where it's like, like verbal like tricks where it's like, Oh, it seems, or like, correct me if I'm wrong, because if you try and say anything else, they're like, no, that's not right. No, I watched Fox News and they said this. I watched uh, CBS and they said that. And it's just like, oh man, like, let's be curious on both sides. Like, let's have some discernment rather than just being like vulnerable to conditioning. It's funny that you mentioned the, uh the religion of science earlier. There's this quote from Francis Bacon that made me shudder in my seat when I read it. And it was that, that those which held and that those which held and persuaded pressure of conscience were commonly interested there in themselves for their own ends. Mm. Say that one more time. That those which held and persuaded pressure of conscience were commonly interested there in themselves for their own ends. So the way that I interpreted that was that often the people that, hold a certain perspective and they push it on people and they pressure people to take on their perspective. They're, they're often trying to bring people to their side for, uh, for maybe a selfish outcome. Uh, I recently watched the, it's uh, LFG, the women's soccer. There's, there's this, uh, HBO documentary on the women's soccer team and the Megan, what's, what's her name? Megan, Pornier something yeah the captain of the women's soccer team she she was so confident in the way that she described everything and saying 
we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, everyone has to be on our side about it. And there were points of the documentary that I thought were more satirical than anything else. I think that if I were to watch them out of context, I would think that they were satire. But really? It was, uh, I, like I, I've read the, so I, I've read the report. I've read the actual transcript, the lawyer transcript, and something that they neglected to discuss at the end of the documentary where they, they're, they're, they're denied the opportunity to, or they're denied that they've been miss or underpaid compared to the men's team. And a part of that was that when they were discussing it initially, the last judge that they had gone through had offered the same pay as the men's team, or he had offered the same, because they're, they're just on different structures. So yeah. the women's team has more of a salary and then the men's team is more, they have lots of benefits on the women's team. And the men's team is almost strictly by bonuses. So winning bonuses. Mm-hmm. And the judge said, well, you can have the, if you guys want it, you guys can have the men's structure. And they said, no, we want to, we want to keep our initial salary and some of the perks that we have. And they didn't mention that at all, which I don't know any time that there's something that's that important and someone doesn't mention it. I immediately feel as though they're arguing in bad faith, especially if it's that pertinent to the case. Like that was the reason that he said that they, he said that they had been mistreated in the way that they're, their travel was so they weren't getting the same hotels or the right flights or the same flights the same hotels so that's what he said going forward but he said they weren't being mispaid or misrepresented in their pay because they had been offered the same pay structure as the men and they said no to that and Hmm. listening to her talk about things being right and wrong and the u.s soccer federation being the evil ones and the them being the good ones i'm not sure anytime that someone speaks that way i'm always a lot more uh, it, it gets me on my toes yes it makes yes. me think oh you think that you're you think that you're right and everyone else is wrong that that's not a that's not a good place to to come from there are lots of people in history that think that they thought that they were 100 percent right and everyone else was 100 percent wrong yeah i mean i think jordan peterson does a really good job uh i'm assuming you've listened to his talks on like equality and it's just like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe, like, maybe it's just like, oh, you're male, you're woman. But also he talks about the agreeableness of men and women and how he coaches women to be less agreeable mm-hmm. in negotiations. Yeah. It's very interesting. Or talking about how men not only are willingly, but can sacrifice more of their time to not having a family where women aren't so ready for that, nor can they because of their body and being able to reproduce. And so men can sacrifice 40, 45 years of their life just to focusing on grind, 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 working the late hours, early mornings, whereas women more than likely want to start having a family and putting more time to that. I'm thinking that as well right now, like, I love volleyball. I'm making the most money I've made in my career, playing on the best teams. But you know what? I really love my girlfriend and I, I want to commit more time to her. And to commit more time to her would be to sacrifice volleyball, if not quit volleyball. So I could lose anywhere from uh, maybe one to five more years of my career. But if it's important to me, then yeah, I'll do that. And that's kind of the same thing with equality where it's like, Okay. Well, is it the opportunity or outcome that we're looking at? 
Mm-hmm. And then he goes even like darker talking about like the, the tough jobs that men work. And he's like, well, I don't see women lining up for these. <laughs> I just, just kind of laugh because he's obviously trolling, but uh, you know, it's uh, like you said, it's just not black and white, but with these black and white solutions or potential solutions that derived out of the narratives brings hate and anger and not real solutions. But it's just so much easier to like grasp on to like, that's not fair, they're wrong. Instead of like, oh, we can go like a little deeper to why this is happening. Yeah, that, that pay equity argument is always interesting to me because if you break it down, it actually looks like a, I think it's a 23 to a 25 factor analysis. So there, hmm. there are that many contributing factors that put into how, to why the total amount is more in the skew of men. And that can even come into like the general interests. So STEM fields is one and men tend to work longer hours and they work more overtime. And as you said, they, they work jobs that are laborious jobs that a lot of people don't want to work, but they tend to be quite high paying. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was funny because that was another part of that documentary that seemed satirical to me was that the captain was talking about how the women had, they actually got paid more gross because they had been so successful. So they've won the, the world championship three times in a row, which is just crazy. Mm-hmm. And that was something that she said was that we've, we've made more than the men because of this, but it's not equitable in off the beginning. So if we had the same payment structure as the men, then we would have made this much. And that's, that's absolutely a point to be made, but it seems that she's making the, the argument for why men are making more in other fields in saying that, well, we, we work this much more, we've won this much more, we've done this more, we've done this more. And I found that interesting. I found that funny. So I, I follow a little bit, but like to your point, I'm just like, man, this is so ridiculous. Like I'm not even going to pay attention to it um, because of this like outrage. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just like, this is wrong. That's this, this, where it's like, have a conversation about it. Um, but if I understand correctly, they were making more money than the men due to their bonuses. And if they were to have the same pay structure as the men, they would have made even more money, but they declined that. Is that right? So they, they had declined that. They had declined that the last time they went into their talks with whatever judge. Okay. They they had declined that because they wanted to keep some of the structure that they already had. So if you get injured and you're, if you're on the men's team and you get injured, then you're not getting paid. If you're not playing, you're not getting paid. You're not getting the bonuses that the people, okay. those bonuses go to the active players. And so that security is something that's super important for a lot of people. And so they, they wanted to retain a little bit of that security. Mm-hmm. That's the way that I understand it. I'll actually, I'll post the, in, in the show links, for anyone that wants to read yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. And so what, what what was the whole like point? She was just making like a kind of a hoorah, just in general, like women overall should have more attention or more money. Essentially. Like, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. I just, and things like that, it's just, I just feel like there isn't discussion where it's just like hate. The only solution is like more hate for uh, this drawn line in the sand where now there's two teams and you're on this side you're on that side if you're on the other side you're wrong mm-hmm. and that's just that's just not how things work we have to like 
be like a collective team. And there's going to be people that you don't agree with, you don't enjoy playing with, maybe you don't enjoy training with, but it's like come together and it's like something's wrong. You don't say to the newspaper, it's wrong. You like meet them for a coffee and like, hey, let's talk about this. Or like, hey, can I talk to you after practice? Like, but now in the world, it's just everything is just so mm, out of control with this cancel culture that we're living in. And if you're not on my team, then you're wrong. And if you're wrong, then you're bad and you shouldn't exist. Maybe you shouldn't have a job. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't be able to provide for yourself or your family. And something I find interesting as well is that it's not only that you're wrong, but you're you're actively victimizing me if you're on the other side of that line. Absolutely. And that's and that's the worst thing possible for the next generation. I mean, that's like pretty much everything I'm about. It's like everything I'm about is like in contrast to this like victim mentality where it's like, hey, you know what? life's going to suck. But you know what? Sometimes when it sucks, it's the best thing to ever happen to you. And when it does suck, it's like, wow, we get the great opportunity to look within ourselves and find a better, stronger version. Whereas now people are just like, gimme, gimme, gimme. It's not right. Gimme, gimme, gimme. It's like, no, 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 no. This is not how it works. You can't just have like beggars, like this, this new generation of like beggars or like, it's not fair. I can't do it. It's like, that's like the opposite. Like, in a sense, how like America was built with people that are just like, I just need a chance. Okay, I'm poor, I don't fit in. But like, you know, just a new, op- just an opportunity is what I'm looking for. And people are like, I have an opportunity, but it's not the opportunity I want. Yeah, I have an opportunity, I have a job, but it's it's not exactly what I should be paid or et cetera. It's like, well, like change it. Like you have the, you have the opportunity, you have the possibility, you can do whatever you want in this landscape that we live in right now, living in a first world country, but, People just want to be the victim. And there's like, there's like a sense of gratification being the victim. You don't want to lose that role. You want to continue being the victim because it's like a, it's like a role by the ego. It's almost like a role. It's like, I'm a mom, I'm a father, I'm an athlete. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. And how unfair is that? It's like, oh, get up. Can't do that. It's just a, uh, uh, it's just so unfortunate to see that. And if I can do one thing with my voice, it's just like helping people pivot out of that like victim consciousness. Do you think that, what, what do you think is the most that you've learned from some type of adversity or vicissitude? Do you have one particular experience or one stage of your life where you can look back and say, that's where everything, that's where a lot of things either started to change or that's when I, that's when I changed. That's when I became, when I burnt off all of the dead wood and became the phoenix from the ashes. Yeah. I mean, there is arguably like six times, but I think the best is just stoicism. Stoicism is like the, it's the truth. It's the truth, right? Because stoicism came from cynicism. Cynicism came from hedonism. Hedonism was like, you like to have sex, you like to eat whatever you like to do, do as much as you want. Cynicism is like, not like, let's reject everything that we don't need, right? We want food, we want water, we want shelter, everything outside of that doesn't even matter. Let's reject it. And then Zeno, the founder was like, all right, like I'll learn from the cynics, but like maybe there's a better way. 
and he found that better way. It was like, all right, let's figure out what's important in our life. We can access some of that. We can feel good about it, but maybe it's important to not consistently be craving more. Maybe it's important to realize that there's going to be bad times. There's going to be times of grief, times of despair, but you know what? Are there different ways to, to let that dissolve quicker than normally so we can get back to living the life we want to live, that of joy and contentment and love? What happens if we find ourselves craving for more and more and more? Can we do something about that? What happens when things aren't going well? What can we focus on? Or do we just focus on things that aren't going well and just complain? And that's been the best thing that happened to me. It's just like, you know what? Let's just back to the basics or make it even simpler. Forget whose quote this is, or it's just like, it's up to you. It's, it's up to you. What are we going to do? We wake up. Oh, like, it's not fair. I'm not playing on my team. Oh, it's not fair. This it's not fair that as you continue to like look on TikTok and social media, and you watch Netflix and you go eat like some fast food. Oh, it's not fair. It's like, man, you have access to everything in the world. Assuming you have internet, you can find how to cook, how to meditate, uh, how to be more mindful, how to work with your money, how to be a better athlete, whatever you want, right? But people just focus on it not being fair. And I can say that because I used to be that person. So stoicism really opened my eyes. It was just like, stop being the victim or continue being a victim. Continue being the victim and see where that gets you. Maybe you'll get a couple short-term wins, right? People will feel bad for you. People will give you something nice. People will give you a job. Is that going to last like 10 months? Is that going to last five years? Is that going to last 10 years? People just like, oh, you're a victim. Like, Oh, take my money. Oh, you're a victim. Have this uh, job. Oh, you're a victim. Like, let's give you a raise. It's like, no, it's like the best thing in the world is like realizing what's completely in your control, this dichotomy of control. What is completely in my control? And you realize there really isn't a lot of things, right? Our ability to prepare ourselves, our effort, our actions, how we treat other people, our intention, and how we react slash respond to things outside of our control, right? And we have to get clear on the things that are not completely in our control, which is everything else. In volleyball, it could be the coach. Does he play you? Is he nice to you? Does he start you? Does he pull you out of games? Can even be your performance. You can't control you're gonna have a perfect game. You can prepare great, you can eat well, you can train hard, you can get extra reps, watch video. But right before the game, you cannot say, I'm gonna be the MVP this game. I'm gonna be the best player. I'm gonna hit 100% and kill every single ball. You don't have complete control on how you play during that game. You don't have complete control if you win or lose. You don't have complete control on the team you make, on a scholarship you get, on how your season goes. But you do have complete control to how you respond when you get pulled out of the game. You have complete control how you respond 
waking up the next day after losing. You can lose, go out and drink. Next day you wake up hungover, you don't do anything. Oh, I feel so bad. Da, da, da. Or you can go home, meditate, get clear on what you want to get better at, wake up the next day and start getting to work. You have that choice every single day. So that's the most important thing to me. It's just like stoicism. It's just like taking control of your life, refusing to be a victim, refusing to look for pity, being the best person you can be and creating your own personal philosophy. I love about that too. It's not like you have to do this, you have to do that. It's like get clear on who you want to be and do it. Know there's going to be roadblocks and setbacks and prepare yourself for those. When those hit, you don't need to complain. You don't need to grieve. You know, maybe it's good sometimes to vent or to be open with someone you love, how you feel, but like get back to work. Start again. Start again. Start again. Start again. Start again. Just keep on going. I, uh, very beautiful. Very well said. I have been trying to figure out for a while what rock bottom looks like and <laughs> whether or not that's a socially constructed thing or not. And I think that it is largely, maybe not socially, but psychologically constructed from the individual. And I think that that comes back a lot to negative visualization and how deeply you can fall before forcing yourself to pick yourself up. And when I started to think about that, I was psychoanalyzing this painting called the wheel of samsara or the wheel of yama yeah. and it's this it's, it's this buddhist painting and it's the wheel of life the wheel of time and the way that i was looking at it was that there's this it's this circle and each spoke of the circle has a different stage of life that we enter so at the top you have your your heavenly life which contains the buddha and then in another spoke, there are the demigods. And then in another spoke, there's human life. And in another spoke, there's the animal realm, where I think that that's more about hedonic pleasure. And then in the, the Predo realm, it's the realm of the hungry ghost. So their necks are very tight and their bellies are very swollen. So they're hungry all the time, but they can't actually consume. And from a drug rehabilitation perspective, I would say that that's the area in which you're in recovery and you're always wanting this thing, but you know that you can't have it. And then the bottom realm is hell. And I was trying to figure out why people go to hell and how long that they're there for. And a part of that was, number one, I think the negative visualization is understanding that bad things can happen to you and actually visualizing and understanding what could happen to you in this world that is rife with suffering and completely full of it is that understanding all the, all the vicissitude that you could experience in the world it enables you to bounce back faster from it. And I think that's a part of the social construction of rock bottom is that you, you hit a point where you decide, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to stop moping around. I'm going to stop being a victim. You get up and then you start to ascend again to go to your heavenly realm. And it was funny because uh, last week when you and I were supposed to get on our call, I jumped on and it was 9.30. And I was thinking to myself, it got to 9.45 and I, I thought that we were getting on at 9.30 and I went, God, it's 9.45. I feel like I'm being stood up by this guy. This sucks. This is the worst. <laughs> and then I go back and check our DMs and we actually agreed on nine. And so immediately I go, oh, I'm the asshole. I'm the guy mm -hmm. that messed this up and wasted this guy's time. 
then I just lay down on my floor for about 30 minutes and didn't do anything. It was like, wow, this sucks. That was an opportunity and I totally missed it. And <laughs> after about 30 minutes of moping around, I sat back up, got onto my desk and just started writing. I went, okay, this is an opportunity. This is an experience. I can learn from this. I can learn to actually really commit to my schedule and understand what's actually going on all the time and check it more consistently and have a better idea. I can cross my T's and dot my I's. And this can be a growth experience rather than something that I'm going to mope around about for the next week. And I think that that's a, an example of that rebound effect where if you understand that every experience that you have, whether it be objectively positive or negative, you can subjectively turn that around. I mean, if you break your leg in half, you, everyone can go away and say, this is going to be the worst. When I, I ruptured my Achilles yeah. when I was uh, 21 and then I ruptured it again when I was 23. And anytime someone would ask me about it, I would say, they would say, oh, that sucks. I would go, no, this is going to be the best experience of my life. Yeah. And then it turned into the best experience of my life just, just, through, that, just through that mindset of I'm going to get better. Yeah, I mean, people tell me all the time, like, I'm injured, what can I do? I'm like, man, it's going to be the best thing ever happened to you because now you can like, learn more about uh, mindfulness. You can get your visualiz visualization practice down. You can start meditating. And when you come out of that, you're just going to be like a Zen warrior. Whereas before then, you didn't have, maybe they had time, but they weren't going to prioritize the time to become this like Zen warrior. So it's like, man, you're going to come back and have your mental game down and you'll have that foundation for the rest of your career, assuming you want to stick with it, right? And then rock bottom is interesting because I kind of hit, I'd say rock bottom in France that year when I found stoicism. And I think it's, it's kind of like this thought of, because it's subjective, right? There's this thought of losing happiness in your life where happiness is like the external pleasures. I lost my girlfriend. I lost my house. I lost my job. I lost my money. These things are outside of us, right? They're like, did you lose that joy inside of you? You lose that optimism? I don't think so. I think rock bottom is like society standards of like what you should strive to have. So you lose that, but you can still bounce back because maybe you still have abundance. You find abundance. You find that gratitude. You're like, you know what? I can do it. So perception is key. And once again, going back to stoicism, that's all it is. It's just like, it's like in Smash Brothers, it's like choose your character or it's like choose your perspective or perception. Do I want to choose the perception of a victim, perception of a warrior, perception of a mindful athlete that loves challenges like what do you want to choose once again it's up to you like you decide it's not the coach it's not the club so I, I, I had a lot of peace over my head this past year being cut by the national team and then they brought me back I was just like well I've already been cut like I'm just gonna play my style like Coach really doesn't like it. Like when I play, like when I talk shit, <laughs> I'm just like, well, I'm gonna do whatever I want. Like, like I had the perception of like gratitude and abundance rather than before it was like scarcity. Like, oh, I don't want to get cut. Oh no, I'm afraid. And it's not saying that like I'm trying to be like this like bad competitor or athlete, but it's just like 
when I kind of like talk shit or get into it, I'm much more present and uh, much more confident on the court. But before it was like the scarcity, like I don't want to make an error, I don't want to get cut. But once you experience the thing you're fearing, then it has like no hold over you. Beautiful. You want to cut there? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a good spot. Dustin, thanks a lot for coming on, man. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for making it. Nice, man. Yeah, man. I, I had no idea what to expect, but it's probably one of the best conversations I've had.